I know you haven't seen the movie Nope. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and, uh... But I know that you are a huge Jordan Peele fan. Obviously. I've seen all three of his movies probably. And could definitely name them. In the movie Nope, there's a lot of scenes that they shot outside. In, in, at night. Okay. And so uh, it's, I think it's really, really interesting how they shot all the night footage. Because they shot it during the daytime. And they didn't just like shoot it during the daytime and then, you know, like make it blue or whatever. What they were trying to do was like, whenever you're whenever you're actually outside at night, like your eyes adjust and you like slowly see more. Or if you've ever been like outside in the country, whenever everything's really well moonlit, and like you can just see forever, just on the starlight and the moonlight. But like right. there's no, everything's low contrast. There's no color information. You can just kind of like see it. Right. And it's all. It was, anyways, so what they did is they took two cameras. One was an infrared camera and one was a film camera because they shot it on IMAX. And they calibrated the field of views for those cameras with lasers. So, so that they were exactly the same image. And whenever you shoot an infrared, the sky is black. And so they took the infrared image. And then they, and then they took the film colored image. And they used the f- color to colorize the infrared footage. And then they used the information between the two cameras to determine depth information and then they use the depth information the colors and the infrared footage to create a composite shot where they in post decided how far you could see out by making those parts of those image darker versus things that were closer so that as like they're revealing things at night and like the person like walks out and the, uh, the actor's eyes quote-unquote adjust the view of the scene adjusts. Oh, wow. And it's this, like, super insane, like, blue, but you can see everything, night image. And you're like, wow, this actually looks like nighttime. But it was daytime. <laughs> it was so cool. So why, why do that, though? I mean, is it is it just because it's really hard to light stuff in a way that looks realistic at night? Yeah. I mean, like, shooting at night with, by moonlight is really, really hard. And then you have to have everybody out at night, and it's just... It's logistically hard. And, like, you know what it's like shooting in the dark? It's difficult. Yeah. And they wanted to have that, you know, when you're standing out looking at by moonlight and you can see for, you know, a mile, but it's dark. Like, it's hard to get that look on camera. Sure. And so they shot it in the daytime. Interesting. It was, it's, it's really effective and it looks incredible. Yeah. And whenever I learned that that's how they did it and that they shot it in infrared and colorized it, I was like... Oh man! Didn't I see a picture though of something from that movie where it was like this is how they shot this scene, and it was like a house, and they had a, like a house-sized softbox hanging over it. Yeah, they did that. So, they so did that, that. That was actually shot at night, then, right? Yeah. Okay. And they did that for rain, and they all of the sky scenes because of like the the thing in the movie, they they digitized all the sky shots. Okay. And so there's like no skies in that movie that aren't like modified in post. Oh man. The digital effects on that movie are nuts. Yeah. And like I didn't know any of this. I thought it was all just clean shot on IMAX and then you learn about this stuff and after the fact and it just blows my mind. <laughs> that is crazy. So, man. But that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> I just think it's really, really cool. I've I've been toying with the idea of shooting in infrared. Like people will uh, take their Fuji cameras and then put an infrared sensor in them, and then shoot an infrared where they get like you know, all the greens or pinks or whatever, and I think it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks weird. Like I mean, it's just kind of a stylized effect. I don't know. Like, yeah. I can't imagine using it for like trying to make something look good. It would just make something look weird. It's just it's like really specialized, right? Like you people who shoot in black and white or people who shoot in infrared. It's like you're making that choice ahead of time versus mm-hmm. making it after the fact. And so I guess you have to really know what you want. Yeah. They do make like infrared filters that you can put on the front of your lens. And then... I don't know how that would work though. Because there's, there's an infrared filter inside the camera, right? Or is there not? Depends on the camera, I think. But like there's a really special way that you have to process it after the fact to make I it see. work. So yeah. doing the changing out the lens is like if you really want to shoot infrared, then... Yeah. I don't know. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back to talk more about the gear side of photo and video. So let's talk about anamorphic lenses. 
I don't know anything about them, so <laughs> what did you want to talk about related to anamorphic lenses? I wanted to talk about the Lawa nanomorphs that came out recently, because they're super, super cool, and it feels like with Lawa and, uh, oh boy, Suri. Oh, you don't know how to pronounce that, do you? <laughs> Surui, Suri, 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 Suri. Oh boy. Let's just say series that it triggers everybody's phones. <laughs> That's a great idea. I love that. Yeah. But um, so Suri and uh, Lawa have come out with these cheap anamorphic lenses. And then like in the same price range, which is, you know, $1,500 to $2,500, you can, there's adapters that you can buy that go behind the lens or in front of the lens. So you can make your spherical lenses look anamorphic-y. But I mean, until the you know, recent years, Anamorphic lenses have just been out of reach for people. It's there. The glass in those are so complex and it's so difficult to make them par focal and the image actually sharp and clean and the flaring look right without having ghosting on the on the front of the lens and all this stuff. And, you know, and they're used in movies. And so they are targeted for people who have movie budgets. And so like if you want to use anamorphic lenses, you have to go to a lens house and rent them because they cost 50 to $200,000 each. Jeez. And so it's having, being able to like own a set of like cine anamorphic lenses is like, it's just out of reach for most people. You go to like Rokinon and you're like, well, Rokinon's the cheap brand, right? I mean, I could buy all these cheap anamorphic primes, you know, a good 12 millimeter F2 for 200 bucks. Oh, how much can their anamorphics be? $20,000. <laughs> That's it. Huh? Yeah. Easy. Right. And it's cheap. It's like, oh, wow, this is a third the price of a normal anamorphic lens. Mm. It's a, it's a car instead of a house. <laughs> and so, like, for people who want to play with and experience, experiment with shooting anamorphic, it's just kind of, it's it's hard to get into right. because it's so expensive. So why would I want to shoot anamorphic? Is it just because it looks like a movie? I mean, what's the, what's the appeal? It's the same thing that we were talking about before with, like, shooting infrared or shooting black and white. It's an artistic choice. And I think that, a lot of, I mean, a lot of what we do when we're shooting video or taking pictures has to do with like what came before, and you know, TV in 30 frames per second, you see it and you're like, okay, that looks like a TV show, and then a movie in 24, it's like, okay, that looks like a movie. And anamorphic's the same thing. Whenever you see that really wide field of view, then it's it's this different experience and this different look. But a lot of it also just comes down to format. I mean, what are you shooting? Do you need something that's wider? And do you need something that looks has that certain look to it? And because it's been associated with movies and film, it's kind of something that people chase after because they want their personal projects to look like a movie. Okay. And then, you know, some of the advantages of shooting anamorphic were, well, I mean, they invent, they came around with it because you're shooting on these square sensors. How do you get a widescreen image? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, just squish the image in the lens and then stretch it out in post. I see. I mean, so what makes it different than just cropping, right? Like, why can't I just shoot with a regular lens and then just crop off the top and the bottom? Yeah, so well, so the anamorphic lens is, it's squeezing the image, right? It's taking, it's taking a wider field of view and squishing it down by some squeeze factor. Okay. And so you have this, like, weirdly squished you know extra tall image on your sensor and then you have to stretch out and post and because you're stretching out in post and because it's delivering this squeezed information it changes how light reflecting light reflection into the lens looks okay. so you get if you're shooting into a light source you get flaring and it's these streaks of flare if you've ever seen a star trek movie by jj abrams it's a flare city right that's that's what we're talking about and then the bokeh will instead of looking uh, round it will look oval and then you get this interesting characteristic of things towards the edge of the frame so things that are on the far right or the far left can look i mean not like stretched but it looks it has a particular like anamorphic look to it it's hard hard for me to describe okay so it just gives the image a certain character that you wouldn't get if you just shot it on a normal yeah lens. and like and you just you can't really get that same character you can fake it you can shoot with a spherical lens you can crop it to a scope which is two 2.39 to 1 mm-hmm. and then you can you can add flares with your with your after effects stuff and try to fake it and like you can kind of fake it but it's, it just doesn't it doesn't really have that same you know intangible feel to it right 
I mean, if you want to get the real effect, you've got to spend fifty to two hundred thousand dollars, right? Right. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of the problem. So enter Siri, enter Lawa, right? Uh, well, before talking about that, I mean, usually when we're talking about really expensive lenses, we're like, well, just buy like vintage stuff, right? You can go out and buy FD Canon lenses that are you know, really solid primes that are kind of soft and have a really nice look to them, and you get like a fifty millimeter for fifty bucks or less, right? They're super cheap. But it's not the same thing with like cinema anamorphic lenses. You find classic anamorphics, people are like, like all the people who, who are like, oh, I really want to shoot an anamorphic because of the look and the feel and the blah, 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 are all the same people who are making movies. And so those people are like, oh man, what if we shot this movie on some 1970 Panavisions? <laughs> and so like you can't find them used because they are still renting them from 50 years ago because they have that look. I see. So it's just... They, they've held their value really yeah. well and people still really want to use them so you can't mm-hmm. get them cheap yep and so these new these new nanomorphs from lawa which is a fantastic name because they're super tiny <laughs> they're as big as like a a typical aps-c lens i mean they're they're no bigger than maybe you know the the 5612 from fuji or you know maybe like an 85 millimeter just standard lens or maybe smaller in some cases and is a normal anamorphic lens much larger than a yeah they're, they're pretty they're pretty huge okay so that, that, that's significant yep. then that they're small vazen is another uh another manufacturer that operates in the space and you can buy some vazen anamorphics for between three thousand and eight thousand dollars still pretty pricey and yeah and they have one that's like 24 27 millimeter that's pretty small but then you once you go up to like their 40 millimeter it, it's just enormous yeah like 82 millimeters and you know 70 feet long it's huge if you're shooting a movie would you normally shoot every scene if you're shooting an anamorphic would you normally shoot every scene with an anamorphic lens or do you just use it for certain key scenes usually when you're shooting an anamorphic you're shooting the entire movie in anamorphic. okay so you would need a range of focal lengths yep. like you need telephoto as well as wide right and because of the squeeze and the complexities therein you're usually shooting on primes okay instead of zooms there do exist anamorphic zooms that are very expensive. I bet. Yeah. And so anything in this price range is just going to be a prime. Okay. And so Lawa's tiny little anamorphics that they came out with, they're nanomorphs. <laughs> it does sound like a TV show, right? <laughs> yep. Uh, they're a 1.5 squeeze. Uh, they're very compact. And they're surprisingly good optical quality for, for the price. Like, I, I can't think of anything else that would really compete with this that is as good they're definitely not cinema level like high 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 quality sure but they're they're so they're pretty good i mean looking at some of the reviews and stuff they're a little soft compared to compared to your spherical lenses that are that are very sharp nowadays for a similar price so a little soft uh, whenever you're shooting for flares and you're getting uh you have your light in the shot and you want to get that that flare across there's there's pretty good amount of ghosting in the frame like you know how whenever you shoot into a, a light source you get you get a like, huge loss of contrast sure. and you have to like use your matte box or whatever yep well for for like an anamorphic you want to see the light source so you can get the flare but with these they don't have very well controlled ghosting and so your image is going to wash out whenever you get those flare shots which like maybe that's what you're going for but if you're looking for like a cleaner image and you also want the flaring this isn't necessarily going to be going to be the best choice but they do have the gears on them your standard gear pattern so you can slap your follow focus on there Mm -hmm. and i mean it's they seem pretty good obviously manual focus uh the siri options that compete with this are cheaper you can get one of those for you know 600 bucks versus a thousand dollars but the big problem with the siri ones are at minimal minimum focal distance the squeeze ratio changes oh weird so as it as it tightens down to that you know close focal distance you go from like a one point three to maybe like a 1.2 type squeeze mm, that's that's pretty significant yeah change. and so it's, it's a big problem because like oh, all of a sudden your your squeeze factor changed and then you have to re restretch it differently for different scenes and if you do a big focus pull it's basically going to ruin your shot so uh, hmm. it's something you have to work around with the the surrey ones and these nanomorphs just don't don't do that the focus breathing is pretty well controlled there's no squeeze ratio change I mean, they're an all-around decent lens that's anamorphic and not huge. Cool. I mean, you can you can pick up a you can pick up a set of these, and they would they would fit in your camera bag. 
They'd be really great for run and gun. They'd be great for small film projects where you don't have a huge budget. And I think it's a really, really interesting entry into a category that has historically been out of reach for a lot of people. Yeah, that is interesting. Are these APSC only? Yeah, so they're Super 35. Lawa does make some full-frame versions that are... Actually, do they? They have an RF and a PL mount version. I think they're full-frame. I know that Surya makes some full-frame ones, but these nanomorphs that I'm talking about specifically are for APS-C. Okay. And they're in basically every mount. They have a couple that are not in your standard mounts, but they're 27 millimeter, 35 millimeter, and 50 millimeter. Those okay. are their standard standard focal lengths that they ship with, and they're a thousand bucks each, and then they they will ship you all of them for you know like a 200 dollars discount. I see. So that's what is that in APS-C? It's, it's like, like 35, uh, 50, and, and 85 or okay, whatever. Okay. Now, what if you had a full-frame camera, like you're using like a Sony FX3 or something? Can you use a lens like this? You you could. You'd have to shoot in crop mode Okay. in order for that to work. And some cameras like the GH6 have de-squeeze in camera, so you don't have to have an external monitor to view the image unsqueezed, which is, which is pretty great. Yeah, that is pretty handy. And the GH the GH six is micro four thirds, but mm-hmm. I assume you could use a speed booster and still use one of these. Yeah, I think you could. It just kind of depends on what you're going to. They have them released in. Let me check here. It's they have micro four thirds. They have XF, and they have E mount, and then I think they have R mount. So they come in basically every mount. The difference, one difference between the these Super thirty five nanomorphs and the Siri ones are squeeze factor. So these are 1.5, which is kind of an interesting right in the middle. Usually you're seeing things as like 1.33 or 1.66 or, or 2x. And then the Siri ones are 1.33. So can you explain the squeeze factor? What does that mean? So it's just a matter of your, your, how much you're, you're squishing horizontally your, your aspect ratio. And so you have to think about what am I going to shoot in and what's my final delivery, you know, width and then decide like what's the right squeeze so typical anamorphic for like movies and stuff if you're shooting on like an airy those sensors are going to be a four by three sensor so four divided by three is 1.3 and then if you do a 2x squeeze on a four by three sensor so you're shooting open gate four by three you de-squeeze at two that comes out to 2.39 to one which is cinescope and that's your typical you know, anamorphic look. That's like your two hundred thousand dollar lenses. Mm-hmm. But that's what that's like mostly what people are, are going for is they want to see, you know, cinescope two point three nine to one, which is a four by three sensor squeeze at two x. Okay. And you're not gonna find a two x squeeze really in this this price range. Well, and you're not gonna find a four by three sensor either. Right. Well, your G, your GH six is a four by three sensor. True. And you can shoot open gate. So there you go. But you would have to have a 2x squeeze. And so for for this at a 1.5, you're going to end up more at like a 1.85 to 1. And so it's going to look similar to 16 by 9. So like you could shoot 16 by 9 spherical on the GH6 or you could shoot anamorphic open gate and then you'd end up with almost the exact same aspect ratio field of view for your final delivery. But then one of them would have an anamorphic look and one wouldn't. Sure, okay. So what people will also do is, you know, most mirrorless cameras shoot... Uh, 16 by 9 and so there's a lot of these you know cheaper adapters or whatever that are all 1.3 squeeze and that's if you take a 16 by 9 and you stretch it 1.3 times you end up with basically 2.39 to 1 and so you can get that cine scope look shooting 16 by 9 and then de-squeezing to you know 1.3 okay it's just the effect isn't as exaggerated Mm. so the the larger that multiplier the more anamorphic it looks. For exactly, right. Yeah. Okay. And then, but like, you have to be careful with, you know, how it looks, right? So if you're shooting 16 by 9 and you de-squeezed uh, at 1.5, that's, how much is that? Quick, Daniel, do math. <laughs> yeah, it's 2.7. So, like, that would be really extra, extra wide. It would look almost like a 70 millimeter, but then you'd have to, like, crop off the sides. Mm. So 1.5 on a... Um, on a 16 by nine might be a little, a little extra, but 1.5 on a, you know, four by three might not be enough. So 1.5 is kind of like in a weird in-between stretch for these anamorphs, but it does give you a little bit of an option to, 
you know, shoot open gate or 16 by nine and then decide like how you want to crop the image to land in some sort of studio aspect ratio. Right. That makes sense. So with something like with something that has a three by two sensor. Yeah. Like, which is most, most modern mirrorless cameras are three by two sensors, your EOS R's and right. your, uh, your Fuji's and your, your Z mount. Nikon's, mm-hmm. Sony, they're all three by two. I mean, not everything can shoot open gate though. Right. I mean, like the FX30 that we mm-hmm. talked about can't shoot open gate. So with that, you're doing 16 by nine, even though the mm-hmm. sensor is four by three. Yeah. And so then in those cases, you're going to end up at, I did that math wrong before, you end up at about 2.6 and then you're going to crop off the sides. And that's if you're doing 1.5 with a 16 by nine mm-hmm. sensor. Yeah. I think where these really shine though, is if you have something that can shoot open gate, mm-hmm. which I feel like these would want to pair so bad with an FX30. But if you pair them with, with something that can shoot open gate and is 3x2, then... Which is not the FX30. Which is not the FX30. That would be like an X-H2S. Mm-hmm. Then you can get... Eh, it's like 2.25 to 1. That's pretty, so, clo- that's pretty close to the... Is it 2.39 to 1? Is that what you really want to be at? Right, exactly. So you, you're you not quite there, but you can crop off the top and the bottom. and then Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. So it gets you pretty close. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, if you're shooting in, in 3x2, you really want to shoot at a 1.6x crop. And so a lot of the cheaper full-frame options that, like, Suri makes that are R-mount are 1.66x. Okay. And that at, you know, oh, 16 by 9 at a 1.6, um, sorry, 3x2 at 1.6 will get you basically at CineScope, which is interesting 2.4. So... I might be thinking about this wrong, but, I mean, so for Fuji, you have the Fringer adapter, which lets you put... EF glass onto your Fuji. It doesn't have mm-hmm. the the adapter doesn't have any glass in it, so it's right. not a speed booster or anything like that. So if you put a full frame lens onto your Fuji, you're not using the entire image circle of that lens, right? Right. So how does that work with something like an anamorphic lens? Like if you if you were to take a full frame anamorphic lens, put it on that fringer adapter, put it on your Fuji, and shoot open gate, would you get would you get what you expect or would you not? You would. It would it would it would basically work. It's I mean it's still the same squeeze ratio. It does kind of depend upon the manufacturing of that lens and if it's like an even even squeeze from every every you know millimeter of that of that lens, right? Or if there's any sort of like range between, mm-hmm. and that's where it comes down to like cost and and that sort of thing with with manufacturing these lenses. Yeah, because so, I'm just curious, like, is that an option or do you really need to be on the native mount at the native? I've uh, considered it. And people do adapt. People will frequently adapt anamorphic lenses to APS-C bodies, and they they work. And I've thought about, oh, what if I got that like the seventy-five millimeter T two point whatever three from Suri, and then adapted it down to the X mount because that one point six, you know, would get a much a wider stretch. And that's kind of what you're going for is like, give me the wider stretch that I can, so that I can get the most anamorphic look. But you do have to be careful because some people will take they'll take these anamorphic lenses and they'll slap like a 1.6 on their camera and shoot 16 by 9 and then they have this like super super <laughs> wide like three to one aspect ratio and it looks really stupid. Yeah, that's that's a little bit too much. Yeah, so you, you got to watch it on a normal screen and it's like you have this thin little slit that mm-hmm. you're looking through. Yeah, I mean I love I love all the anamorphic stuff. I think it's really cool. It does kind of require you to do a bit of math to figure out like what am I shooting with and where do I want to end up and like what mode does my camera have and do like I even have an open gate option and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it just requires a little bit more forethought maybe than slapping a lens on and shooting. Yeah. I do and then think... there is the workflow stuff too. So you have to de-squeeze it. Mm-hmm. Where does that happen? Where do you normally do that? You do it in your, whatever your editing software is. Okay. I mean, you can so do it in Premiere or Final Cut Pro. You, you mm-hmm. can de-squeeze the footage in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of like stretching it out. It's not, it's not too big of a deal. Sure. You do have to kind of be. It gets it gets it gets complicated if you want to do it correctly. And there's a there's an anamorphic calculator online, but basically you have to know like what are, what is the pixel pixel density not density but the vertical and horizontal pixel lengths of your sensor at the resolutions you're shooting. So like you need to know my you know thirty eight for whatever thirty eight sixteen by whatever. Um, so you have to know those exact numbers, and then you have to know what your final delivery format is, and you have to know those exact numbers, and then your de-squeeze, and then you have to, you know, you can then calculate out, okay, how much, what percent do I need to stretch this horizontally, and et cetera, et cetera. Because, like, once you start getting into sh- this stretching and, like, your final delivery, you got to do things like make sure that your vertical resolution is divisible by 8 so that you don't get any weird sub-pixel math because of 
eight bit, you know, or oh, two weird. to the, two to the power of kind of thing. <laughs> and it's, and then like you want to make sure that all your numbers are even. You're not doing like odd or something that ends in like a one or a seven or something. And so man, you that sounds to, complicated. Yeah, so you have to be like, I want to be in two point three nine to one, but I want to deliver in, you know, what's my horizontal width? I want to deliver in like Sydney, uh, whatever DCI four K, like forty whatever four thousand forty eight or whatever it is. Or do I want to live on like UHD, uh, like 3840? Anyways, and so like yeah. you have to like figure all that out. Mm-hmm. And then then you can figure out like how much do I need to squeeze and how much do I need to crop. So it, it does add a lot of complexity to post, but you gotta you gotta work for it if you want that look. Yeah, yeah, you gotta work for it. And as you as you said, some cameras now can do de squeeze in the camera so that you can mm-hmm. see it. That doesn't change what you're recording, but it lets you see it on the monitor in a normal way. Yep. So the GH6 can do that. Yeah. Does the X-H2S do that? No, it does not. Okay, so most cameras don't do most it. Most cameras don't. I think that the, the sweet spot is that if you... Panasonic seems to support more of these video features than anybody else. Even Sony with their FX series, like, why do they not support any sort of de-squeeze options in, in camera? So, it's like, get, um, like, an S1H. I don't even know if S1H to support it. Like, you get a GH6, and if you can find a Micro Four Thirds anamorphic lens as a 2X squeeze on a GH6, that's going to look pretty sweet. <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, if you're shooting with something like that, you're probably not vlogging. You're, no. You're shooting, you're shooting like a production type thing, and it's not that big of an ask to have a monitor on your camera. No, and, you're going to have and, it on there. And pretty much any monitor can do that de-squeeze. I know, like, the Ninja can do it, Small HD can do it, like... I'm not. I'm not too upset that cameras don't support that. I guess. I mean, it's not that hard for a monitor to do it. It seems easy enough. I think the Black Magics support support it. That wouldn't surprise me. Yep. And then I don't know. I think that they are also a four by three potentially. Huh. So I, I would need to double check that. I'm not 100 percent sure. But if so, I mean, you know, Black Magic would be a good, really good option. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of built for it, right? You're already going to be rigging it out. Most anamorphic lenses have gears on them, so I mean. Yeah, that, that all fits. It does. It's all kind of like that that area that you're playing in is with those cheap cine type cameras. You know, maybe mm-hmm. you're going to mount it on a like a Kinfinity or something. Right. But it would this would look so look the nanomorphs would look really small on a on a Kinfinity <laughs> camera, <laughs> like hilariously small, like the GH5 with that uh, 42 and a half millimeter lens. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, that looks ridiculous. <laughs> It's it's interesting because these are very specialized lenses. Mm-hmm. This isn't the type of thing that you would put on your camera to go casually take pictures on your next beach vacation, you know, yeah. or, or take video. I mean, not really. It's it's made for a specific thing. It's like I'm making a short film, I'm making a movie, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And so, and and these aren't cheap. I mean, even the cheapest thing is five hundred, which is pretty affordable. But yeah, for the sturdy ones, a but... lot of these are more expensive than that. And so it's. You're spending a lot of money just for that lens. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's cool if you can use the camera you already have. But if you're spending thousands on lenses, then at some point, like, it's more understandable that, like, maybe you would have a, a more dedicated camera if you're doing this type of shooting. Sure. I. It is a weird market category, right? It's targeted towards people who want to shoot anamorphic but don't want to have these big budget things. If you were shooting you know, any sort of film project where you're needing like more gear and you have a bunch of people, you're probably going to rent equipment. Yep. And if you're renting equipment, you might as well rent like, you know, a good camera and good, good anamorphics and that sort of thing, which obviously would be obscenely expensive. And like, maybe that's where this falls in, but for, you know, a thousand bucks, like that's a, it's, it can, you know, it's kind of, kind of expensive for a lens, but you know, compared to like a G master, it's still half the price. Sure. Now, if you need a set of them, then it starts adding up sure it does they have a kit i think right like can't you get like all three of them for like 2700 or something yeah exactly you can get all three for slightly cheaper i don't know i think it opens up a lot of interesting options for indie filmmakers makers makers (laughs) (laughs) indie filmmakers who have like okay my gear budget is is five thousand bucks what am i going to get what am i going to rent and they could i mean they could probably rent everything that they need for that for the full shoot and then rent these nanomorphs yeah. and they're going to be they're going to be fine and they're going to look good. Yeah. It, it's really interesting to me because I mean these sound really cool. I think it'd be really fun to play with. Mm-hmm. And for someone like you or me that has a good APS-C camera and doesn't really want to rent thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear, you know, mm-hmm. for a for a shoot, 
it's like it kind of makes sense as an option. I mean, yeah. it'd be it's not that expensive, and it lets you try this out and learn if you like it and, and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, you still are spending a lot of money for something that's going to be a specialized use case. Yeah, it is, it's very true. And the more and more I think about it, it is this weird, it's this weird market spot where the people who are going to buy this are the ones who want to play with Anamorphic and want to experiment with shooting it. But if you were, like, once you start getting up into, you know, even a small budget indie film, maybe you have a $100,000 budget and you're, you're shooting something, you're probably not going to use these. They don't have enough squeeze to get the anamorphic look that you're looking for. And you probably are going to want to shoot with sharper spherical lenses. And then if you want it to be wider, just crop. Yeah. Uh, and so if you, it doesn't really fit maybe for those budgets. And maybe it maybe it is morally for like the, the people who are making movies that they're just going to post on YouTube. And if they're just like a one or two man crew, but they still want to have that look, it doesn't quite have the same stretch as, you know, quote unquote, real anamorphics, but it's, you know, maybe more than the 1.3 and it, it kind of works in that way. I almost see it as kind of like the gateway drug of anamorphic lenses mm -hmm. where it's like, I mean, $3,000, if you were to buy all three of these is still a far cry from a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollar indie budget, which I know is a small movie budget, but sure. And that's a big difference. And so I could see where maybe somebody like you would want to get one and try it and learn yeah. what it's like to shoot an anamorphic. And then maybe whenever you do a larger budget project later, you've already got that experience and you know if that's a look you want to get. I so bad want to shoot like a little 15 minute like horror short on these lenses. <laughs> like so bad. I think it would look incredible. It'd be pretty I, cool. It, I think it also opens up opens up opportunity for people to learn about, you know, just dealing with animal. Well, you footage. mentioned all that workflow stuff. It's yeah. pretty complicated. I mean, this seems like a good way to get your feet wet and kind of learn. Yeah, how it works. exactly. Like for you can you're a thousand dollars in, you own this thing, you can shoot a bunch with it. You can learn the workflow, learn how to mess with that footage, know the ins and outs and, and all the problems that, that come with dealing with anamorphic. And then, you know, as you're upgrading and like, maybe you're going to go work on a shoot for somebody and they're like, well, do you have any experience with, you know, shooting anamorphic and knowing how to, you know, deal with like the edges of the frame and all this stuff? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know how to do that. I've, I've worked with it before. Makes so, sense. I don't know. They're really, I think it's a really cool product. And of all the things that have come out recently, like the moment adapters and like the back mm -hmm. of your lens adapters and the Siri things, of all these things that have come out, um, I think that these nanomorphs show the most promise because they're not compromised in a weird way. For a lot of these, it's like, oh, you're adapting to your lens and you have to like set the focus to infinity and you got to make sure this is just so. And it's really complicated. And you, it's not just like putting a lens on the camera mm. or like, oh, the squeeze ratio changes or just make sure you don't shoot closer than, you know, eight feet or whatever. <laughs> and but these nanomorphs, it's like, yeah, they're a little soft. Yeah, they have some ghosting on the front. But in general, they're decent lenses and yeah. they perform well and they're you know, a thousand dollars. I was going to ask about those adapters because I'd seen where Moment had released that adapter a while back and, or maybe it's not released, but they announced it at least. And, you know, yeah, it was like 1200 bucks and you can use your existing lenses with it. And so, I mean, that mm -hmm. seems pretty appealing, but the stuff you're saying makes it seem like it's just kind of fiddly and maybe doesn't work quite as well. And it, it makes it sound like it adds more complexity to a workflow that's already pretty complex. So I just we're maybe being a little unfair to the moment one. Most of these issues that you have with like aligning your focal distances and, and all that sort of thing are for the back of glass type adapters. The moment one is unique in that it mounts to the front of your lens element. Oh, interesting. And so you set your lens to infinity and then they have like these certain markings on it to make it a little easier to line up everything. Uh, that's, that's the other thing. Like if you're using an anamorphic, it has to be perfectly exactly horizontal with your, oh, yeah. with your you sensor it, you wouldn't want it to be askew mm -hmm. yeah. if it's off just a little bit it's like <laughs> now your squeeze is 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 diagonal yeah <laughs> so and that's a that's a almost impossible to fix in post it's not impossible but it is a huge pain yeah so they have ways like okay this is how you line it up and whatever perfectly and it just you can just like turn it and lock it in and supposedly it's it's, it's fantastic or whatever but you're still having to deal with it. It's not like just snapping on a lens. And it's funny, though, because dealing with that sort of thing is in some ways easier to deal with if you're just casually shooting projects yourself at home. Sure. When we've 
done actual film shooting, mm-hmm. you don't want to be messing with stuff no. like that because everybody's waiting on you, and you know you're the you're the guy that's sitting there fiddling with his camera, and like that's not a good feeling. Oh so you yeah, can't, you can't use it for pro work. It kind of makes sense for that home use, but then. I mean, I just feel like in everything I've done, cameras and not, having good gear that's the right tool for the job makes it so much easier to learn how to do things. Right. I remember that from learning guitar. It was like, you know, if you get a cheap guitar, then yeah, you haven't spent much, but it's actually harder to play and harder to learn than it is if you're using like a quality guitar that, you know, is set up properly and everything works the way it's supposed to and all that. And it kind of feels a little bit similar with these where I think about something like that omen adapter and, or the back of glass adapters or whatever. And it's like, yeah, this works. And maybe I'm saving a little bit of money over buying something like the nanomorph, but in, in return for those savings, I'm having to deal with like, make, make, let me make sure I line this thing up right. And, you know, set my focus properly. And I've got all this big checklist of stuff to do before I even start dealing with the anamorphic mm-hmm. workflow and post. And it just feels like it might be so many barriers that it makes it harder to actually learn how to use. And, you know, maybe it makes me less likely to even want to pull it out and try it and make something with it. So that's a really great point. It does seem like the kind of thing that uh, that maybe not you, but I would 100 percent buy because uh, I'm a sucker for this sort of thing. And then it would sit in a drawer yeah. or on a table or get lost somewhere mm-hmm. uh, like that other lens that I lost. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> How do you lose a lens? <laughs> I don't, I just... I've been asking you that question every day for the past two months. Oh, boy. Uh, so there's a YouTuber, GX Ace, and he does a lot of Fuji stuff, but he shoots images in anamorphic. And he likes to make these. He takes pictures that look very like Blade Runner type style where they're very stylized, but he shoots photos in this stretched anamorphic. That sounds kind of cool. And it is, it's very cool, and it's a very specific style. And it just I just keep thinking about what we talked about in the pre-show, which was like shooting in infrared and shooting in black and white. Well, shooting in anamorphic is just the same thing. So like it gives you this extra like different way to, you know, take your images or shoot your video. And I think maybe like that's also the market that these anamorphs are going for is people who want to experiment with it and, but not necessarily, you know, shoot a movie or whatever. Right. And then just to, double down on what you said about the moment thing yeah 100 percent. if i was on a film set or a tv show set i would not use an adapter like that that would yeah. be a hard pass at that point you're going to be able to justify renting whatever you need because mm-hmm. you want to be able to pop it on the camera and know it's good to go yeah if the director came to me they're like we want to shoot this in anamorphic and i have this adapter and we're just going to use this i'd be like no 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 <laughs> we're not doing that i i would definitely be interested in trying one i don't know if i'm I don't know if I'm at the point where I'd spend a thousand dollars on it, but I mean, if I was committed enough to trying out anamorphic, I think I'd go for something like this. I'm probably gonna buy one of these. <laughs> like, I just know it. Sometime in the next like three years, I'm gonna buy one of these lenses, and I'm not gonna be able to stop myself, and it's just gonna happen. Yep. I, I'm gonna trip, fall, and then accidentally order an anamorph. Yep. Yep. So, I hate when that happens. <laughs> trip and fall and order a lens. Yep. Yep. Happens all the time. So, with that in mind. 27 millimeters, 35 millimeters, and 50. What is the right focal length for this lens? Like, which one oh, would you man. get? That's really interesting. I I have to think I'd go with the wide one. Because if I'm if I'm doing anamorphic, I'm getting that wider field of view. And mm-hmm. I'm getting the, the wider crop anyway. I don't know how what the right... The, the 239 to 1 or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'd really want to take advantage of what that gives you and get like a a really wide shot of like a city or of a field or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So I feel like I'd go with the wide one, but that's a hard decision. What would you do? Oh, man, it's, it's a, it's, it's tough, right? Like whenever we, whenever we shot that, that show, we shot so much of it in 35. And like, if you're shooting things where you're, and that was 35 full frame, 35 millimeter full frame. So if, if, if I'm, if I'm shooting a thing and I'm whatever, eight feet to 15 feet from the subject and I want a medium I mean I'm gonna be probably 35 millimeter full frame equivalent I'm gonna want you know something tighter for those for those close-ups but 27 is roughly 35 so which is what you're saying right you know and then it's gonna look wider because it stretches wider and so I might be inclined more towards the 27 as well 
but I think that I would be really tempted by the 35. Yeah. Because it's getting it's getting a little closer to telephoto. Um, and I know that like we're starting to get into like, oh, well, what's the difference between full frame and, and APS-C and like crop factors and blah, blah, blah. But ignoring what sensor size is going on to, when you get, the closer you get into a telephoto, the more correct things look, right? Uh, you have that, you know, if something's, I guess it depends on how close it is to the lens, but if you're trying to get like an even framing and you're shooting on like between 50 millimeter and 85 millimeter, it's going to look the most correct. You're not going to get any pinning or, you know, wide angle stretching or whatever. Right. And so I would almost be inclined to steer away from the 27 just to avoid, you know, that wider angle look. Mm. If I was using, if I just had one. I'm using as a general lens. I would think I would want it to be closer to as close to telephoto as I could get, but also still afford me the ability to shoot inside and not be standing right. like shooting through the window outside across <laughs> across the street. So I feel like for me, probably a 35 millimeter. It it really depends on what you're shooting. It does. We're I'm sure at some point we'll talk about this, but we're about to go shoot at a road race, right? And I mean, yeah, like if we had anamorphic lenses, it would be awesome to shoot that in anamorphic. But for something like that, I think I'd want the 50 because, yeah. you know, we're going to be farther away from stuff. Mm-hmm. It's all, all going to be outdoors. And that's what you would want for that, probably, you know. And so it, it's, it really depends on what you're doing. And I can understand why people would buy a set of them. I mean, in that case, I would almost want something longer. Like I would want like a 75 or a 90 millimeter prime for a sure. lot of that. Well, I'm just thinking of, of what they're offering with these lenses. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're trying to pick between those three. Well, it sounds like the answer is that we just had to get all three. Yeah, well, we maybe, get... maybe you can get one, I can get another one. and There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What would you do with an anamorphic lens? <laughs> Except for let me borrow it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll start taking photos with it. Oh, that'd be cool. Get a popular YouTube channel or something. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I don't know. These, it's, these are just super cool, and I'm really excited about them, and I think it's a... It's an entry into a market that hasn't really seen anything like this before. Yeah, it's cool to see that innovation. And I will look forward to you buying one and telling us all about it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go ahead and move on from anamorphic lenses and talk a little bit more about cameras because this is the Camera Gear Podcast and we like talking about cameras. And we're going to try super hard to not talk about Fuji in this next section, but I think we're probably going (laughs) to fail. Because anytime we talk about cameras, all you want to talk about is how much better Fuji is than every other camera. I can't help myself. <laughs> it's, it's just what I know. And they're just super, super good. Uh-huh. But since we're talking about it, let's start no, talking no. about what the X-T5 looks like. Let's, let's not talk about that. That is, that is not what we're discussing today. So I want to talk about Canon for a moment, and specifically the EOS R, which we've discussed a couple of times in previous shows. But... It's kind of been making me think, is that still a viable camera in 2022? If you were buying a camera today, is there any reason you would buy the EOS R? It's a good question, right? It's it's four years old at this point, but if you went out to buy one used, they're still like $1,600. And so, I mean, whenever I was first getting into photography and that sort of thing, I was looking for, you know, my budget is, can I buy a camera and a lens for less than $500? Yes, yeah. and you did. What, what, what camera <laughs> I, was that? I bought a GX7. That's a so, Panasonic? Yeah, it's Panasonic. And whenever I was buying it, I was I asked the person at the camera store, do you guys got any that have the screens that go all the way around so I can take a picture of myself? And, and I made fun of you for that. And you made fun of me, and they were like, get, get out of here. <laughs> 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 and now look at all the cameras. They all got flippy screens. <laughs> anyway... I bought a GX7, which is a Panasonic Micro Four Thirds, and then I bought a what is it, fifteen to sixty millimeter, three point five to six point three. Close. Zoom. It's twelve to fifty. Thank you. Because I have that lens now. Yes, you do. Yeah, and and then later on, I bought a, a Pancake Prime, but I bought it for like three hundred dollars, or like three fifty. Yeah, it was it was pretty and, cheap. And you're talking camera and lens? No, camera. no, that was just the camera. Camera but... and the lens was less than six hundred. Yeah, yeah, and. It was, when I bought it in 2017, it was released in 2013. So it was a four-year-old camera, right? And that's the same range that we're talking about right now. It's 2022. And the EOS R came out in 2018, mm-hmm. October 2018. So we're right right on its birthday, right? Four years later, you know, what is what is the price of it? And, and is it a reasonable camera to buy? And I think that the price is kind of the big sticking point. With the pandemic and everything, all the camera gear prices and the used prices seem to have kind of creeped up. Yeah. 
And so you, I mean, right now, $1,600 new, you can buy an EOS R. And then used, they're not much cheaper. We got to be fair. An EOS R is not a GX7. And, oh, yeah, for and sure. And when it, when it came out, the EOS R was, I think, 2500 maybe. And, I mean, it was a... It was and is a premium camera in the sense that it's full frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, you know, a compact, tiny little travel camera. Sure. The GX7 is definitely not not really comparable to it uh, in in that way. So, I don't think it was ever positioned as like an intro. You know, this is my first camera sort of thing. But it's really surprising to me that it's held value as much as it has in four years. I didn't think it was quite that old, uh, but I guess it did come out in 2018. So yeah, so a long it, time. It launched at $2,300. Okay. And it seems like the Canon stuff just holds its price better. Like if you look at the, even whenever, you know, the EOS R came out, you would compare it maybe to something like a 5D Mark IV or 5D Mark, I think I stopped at four, right? Yeah, they did. And it was twenty seven hundred new, and you could still like in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, it was impossible to find one for less than two thousand dollars. They just kind of seemed to hold mm-hmm. their value because Canon has that reputation. This one being what? What is that math? Nine thousand dollars cheaper? Nine thousand? Ha Nine hundred dollars <laughs> cheaper than it was whenever it released four years ago? I guess that makes sense, right? But has like has the technology kept up? I felt like I feel like whenever the EOS R came out in twenty eighteen. It was competing with um, such things as the uh, X-T3. You know, uh, just say maybe it's APS-C, but some would say it's as good as full frame. <laughs> and it was competing against the Z6 Mark I from Nikon and the Sony a7 III. Uh, the a7R II was out, but that's over 4000 right? So yeah. not not really a competitor. And so EOSR came in, Canon's first mirrorless camera. It wasn't, it's not their 1DX, it's not their Pro Pro line. And it's, but it's not their cheaper line, you know, like their 70s and their and that sort of thing. So in compared to its competitors for photo, it had a higher megapixel count. I think it's like 31 megapixels, which is still pretty, pretty good for full frame, right? It's kind of right in that sweet spot. Even even now, Sony's, you know, mid-range, not entry, but mid-range, you know, like a7 IV, that's 24 megapixels. Well, same with the Canon R6, which I think some people would say the R6 was sort of the successor to the EOS R. I would agree with that. And I think the R6 has a lower megapixel. It does. So 31, pretty good. So for photo, maybe maybe it's better. Like the color is going to be better. Uh, but whenever like, you start talking about video, it just felt like the EOS R was not up to snuff. I mean, it, it definitely it, felt that way. Yeah, 720p for your slow motion. You're shooting, you're shooting 120p. You're shooting in 720. Mm-hmm. You don't get to even. You don't even get 1080. The 4K was good, but it, I had think, a, it has serious crop to it. It had yeah. like a, it had like a 1.7 crop when you're 4K. shooting 4K. Yeah, yeah, so it's like you have to shoot. You have to shoot 1080. And so all the all the YouTubers out there were like shooting 1080 and then upscaling to 4K. And then they were telling everybody, oh, well, it looks just as good at other 4K whenever you take the Canon US R480 all intra and you upscale it. It just looks as good because Canon colors and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so, like, I feel like the video specs were always a bit compromised, but everybody used it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. It's like it came out and when we say everybody used it, I mean, the only thing we really have to go off of is that all the YouTubers used it. Yeah. And it really did seem like for a year or two, that was the camera that everyone was using. Yeah. You know, Peter McKinnon was using it, uh, Matty Hapoya, you know, like all those guys that, yeah. that you follow on YouTube were using that camera. And it is weird because it did have those those kind of flawed specs. So no mm-hmm. IBIS, didn't have, uh, you know, didn't have good 120. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it is surprising. It had limits. It, it only shot, uh, I mean, I guess everything, most everything there shot, you know, 8-bit internal. Mm-hmm. It did, so it didn't have 10-bit internal, but neither did the Sony. Yeah, almost nothing had 10-bit internal back then. I can think of one camera. Yeah, I can that, too. Um, that 10-bit internal is called the X-T3. Uh, the GH5 yeah. did too. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, anyway, you know, smaller sensor, right? It can read faster and pull more data. But, I mean, when I think about, I think about like who I follow and know about that shoots and like, you know, are on the internet from DP review or from YouTube or whatever. I mean, it feels like there's such a mind share towards Canon and towards Sony. Yeah, that it is. It's like maybe maybe it's disproportionate. Because whenever I talk to like, you know, photographers in the real world, they're like, yeah, I shoot Canon. And they know maybe they don't care about gear as much as you or I. 
and they more care about like the pictures or whatever. Most people don't care about gear as much as you and I. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, but like my dad shoots Nikon, and he's always shot well not always I mean whenever he shot film he shot Canon but he's basically always shot Nikon and I think there's a lot of people out there that are like they they like their Nikon they have the Nikon glass and that's what they shoot and for the longest time Nikon was 14-bit raw and Canon was 12-bit raw and Canon was like but our colors are better blah 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 and all the Nikon people were like well this is 14-bit and I can do more with it and it looks just as good and I think Nikon's still a very reputable brand when it comes to taking pictures and still photography and even the video specs on their cameras are really, really good. But no one talks about Nikon on the internet. Yeah. Like every YouTube channel all across the board, like no one is shooting with a Z7 or a Z6 Mark II. Yeah, it's very, very rare. Yeah. And it's just, but it, it's weird because like they're still, they're like number three, right? It's like Canon, Sony, Nikon as far as, you know, sales and, and performance and that sort of thing. And so I think that there's like a mind share, you know, what are we, who's talking about these things and, you know, where, but where is it actually in the market? And like, maybe it's disproportionate. But all that, so all that being said, that's why it felt like, you know, in 2018, 2019, everyone was shooting on the OSR. Yeah. And I mean, to be, to be perfectly fair, it can stand up in some ways in the video specs. I mean, mm -hmm. the highest codec for it was 400 megabits. Right. Which is really high. I mean, yeah. you know, back then, almost no cameras had anything close to that. I mean, if you think about like the Sony, like, mm -hmm. I'm talking about full frame cameras, but you think about like the. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, I can think of one camera. Uh -huh. <laughs> think about like the, the Sony uh, A7 III. Mm -hmm. I mean, that camera feels like it has terrible video codecs in comparison. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think the best one it could shoot at was like 50 megabit per second. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, so it's all really compressed. And the one of the big problems that people had with Sony was just their 8 bit color and 8 bit codecs aren't very good. Like, they're okay, they're decent, and everyone, like, people love them, but they're not, like, when they made the switch to 10-bit for Sony, it was this, it was this huge jump, and, like, you get so much better confirmation, and, like, the 10-bit, you know, s Cinetone stuff, or S-Log 3, is all really, really good, mm -hmm. but, and you compare it to, you know, anything that they were coming out with in 2018, specifically on the a7 III, that was all the 8-bit 420 internal stuff. It just wasn't as good. And maybe that's why people shot the Canons. Because, like, you didn't even have to grade it, grade it really. Like, you get these really nice warm colors. And, sure, you're shooting 8-bit internal. But it looks mm -hmm. really good. Yeah, and, I mean, the video specs on it aren't bad. They're not great. I don't think I would have bought it to use as a video camera. And sure, I that's feel like I feel like even, you know, within the past few years, it... It's still fine for video, but it wouldn't be my first choice for video. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I owned one up until two months ago, but I had bought it specifically as a photo camera. Right. I do a lot of product photography. I wanted a good camera for that. And it was fantastic for that. I mean, compared to the GH5 that I was using for video, it's like no question. The USR was definitely the better photo camera mm -hmm. for that. And so I used it for all of my photos. And when I had bought it, I had thought, you know, maybe this will be a B cam for doing video or maybe... If I want to do some sort of vlog style thing, maybe I'll just take it with me because it has good autofocus. But mm -hmm. I just never really used it for that. And the GH5 felt like it had so much better video capability than the EOS R that I just used the GH5 for everything instead. So I felt like it was good for photos, but I just can't imagine buying it for video use. Yeah, and I guess we're both really big video shooters. And so that's why we keep focusing on those specs. But didn't you have an issue with, like, you could never figure out a good way to match your footage and codecs between the two cameras? That was a little bit of a problem. I mean, part of the issue is that I you know, really like shooting in 4K. Even, mm -hmm. if I don't, even if I don't plan to deliver in 4K, it's nice to shoot in 4K because you can crop in. And that was always a problem on that camera because it has that 1.7 crop. And so you have to have a really wide lens to get mm -hmm. anything reasonable. And so that was one problem. I also had some trouble with the autofocus on it in video. And I think maybe some of that was because I was using a I was using a Tamron EF lens adapted to the R mount. Maybe that was a factor. I don't know. But some of those things were just kind of causing problems. It was just a little annoying to work with. Yeah, I guess you know, ignoring the video specs. So maybe like in 2022, you're not buying an EOS R for its video capabilities. If you want something with video capabilities, you can probably get something that's better and cheaper. If you have to be full frame, I mean, you're probably looking at Maybe an A7C or a Nikon Z6. I think the Nikon Z6 could output RAW over HDMI. I think, I think it was one of the first cameras mm -hmm. to offer that. And those are 1200 bucks. 
So like if wow, you're looking, cheap. yeah, if you're looking for a, a video camera of you know full frame from you know in that price category, I don't think mm-hmm. you're gonna you're not buying a you're not buying an USR. I mean, you maybe you're buying an FX30. It's it's got a lot more yeah. specs. I'm sure, it's Super 35, but you're talking about a Super 35 sensor that's four years newer. Sure, sure. And so like, but looking at it from a photo perspective, you know, what are you what are you comparing it to? Is it a decent photo camera? And at sixteen hundred dollars, I'm wondering what. Oh, I, jeez, I'm looking at my list here. Lumix S5 is 1700, and that's a full frame camera. That's a full frame camera. So that's an, that's another really good option for video. You know, 4K, 4K 60, 10 bit internal. It's got IBIS. You can do the the multi shift, you know, sensor stuff. And it basically, has everything that you'd want except for good autofocus. Well, good autofocus for video, but for for photos, contrast is arguably just as good, if not better, than face detect. Right. And so I would say that the Lumix X5, if you like the photos out of Lumix cameras, which I was going back through my photo library and deleting this, at this problem, <laughs> where I'm using Lightroom to to uh, have some of my photos available on my phone. So I'm using like their smart previews and their catalogs. And then I have that, you know, it's creating its own little data files. And then whenever I run my rsync backup to move my photo library copied to my ser- copy to the server it's copying that library <laughs> and but that library takes all of the um, images and then it renames them with a period in front of it and then dot jpeg dot and then a sequence of numbers and google photos is uploading all of those oh, no. but because they're smart previews it's not uploading them correctly so they come in as like half gray and broken oh no and i can't find a way to like search for dot jpeg dot in google photos to like find all these things and delete them so i have to scroll through all my freaking pictures i'm like okay what are all the pictures that i took with a gx7 scroll 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 delete 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 i had to delete like hundreds of pictures oh man. And i was like do i just destroy my library and re-upload it anyway it's not what we're talking about point is i was doing this horrible terrible task and I was looking at some of the pictures that I took with the GX7, and Canon, like the Canon color look, is really hard for me to describe. And but like when I look at a like a Canon image, there's this certain the way that it does like light roll off and contrast has this like round hole. I don't know how to describe it, but like it, it just feels it feels very like comforting. It feels very warm to me, mm-hmm. and I feel like specifically for taking pictures of people, like skin tones, mm-hmm. I feel like it's extremely good at that. Yeah, man, but it's just it's just the way that the contrast looks and the roll off between it. It has this this really certain look, and whenever I would shoot with the GX7, and it, I'd, if I had if I didn't have harsh sunlight, so I had like good even lighting, uh, I would get the same the same look and feel. And so I was looking at huh. those of my pictures, and I was like. Man, these look really good. <laughs> like it's this really nice, like nice, you know, roll off look to yeah. it. And definitely Panasonic, not something that you could ever match on a Fuji camera. Oh, never. No, those things are hot garbage. <laughs> oh, way too stylized. What? What even is classic neg? Ugh. But the Pan- Panasonic's colors are usually really true. They're very good at, especially yes, with like the GH5. Like you, it's they're very accurate. Uh, and so. Even even back with like that twenty third king camera, and so I think that something like an S five, like you're probably gonna get you're gonna get really nice colors, and it's, like, it's gonna be a good Panasonic image. It's gonna have that nice contrast look to it. It's full frame. The contrast autofocus, you know, it's gonna be really good. So like maybe that's a maybe yeah. that's a better buy than an USR. It might be. It depends on what you're doing. I mean, I agree with what you're saying on the colors. One thing I think about when I look at different cameras is like how much character of the camera am I seeing in this photo or video? Yeah. And with something like Canon, I think it's like unapologetically important character. Everybody talks about the Canon colors. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with Fuji. Mm-hmm. If if you're not getting some character from the Fuji camera, you're using it wrong. Right. But I feel like other cameras, like a lot of Panasonic's, it, it's, it's and, and I kind of feel this way about Sony too. Yeah. It's not imparting as much character. It's just trying to give you a true to life, like, perfectly reasonable normal mm-hmm. like this is what it looks like in real life and that's kind of good in some cases it, it maybe makes it a little bit easier to match with other mm-hmm. cameras and it, it probably gives you a more central starting point to start from if you want to make a bunch of adjustments so if I, you plan on doing color grading i think it could make sense i think it's a real that's a really good point of where anyone should start if they're you know buying a camera and they're considering like okay am i using it for photo am i using it for video whatever it's like is is this brand known for trying to be as accurate as possible 
or to have a certain a certain look and and you know standout character mm-hmm. about it. And yeah, I mean, if you want something that is as true to form that you can mold to what you need, I mean, yeah, Sony, Panasonic. But if you want something that if you like the Canon look and that's you're always editing your Sony photos to look like a Canon photo, just buy a Canon. Well, and that was why I got the USR because. We were going and taking pictures at a bunch of events, mm-hmm. and I would come home from these things at 9 p.m., Yep. and the people we were doing this for would want the, want the, the pictures as quickly as, as we could get them, and I was having to go through and do a bunch of editing before I sent stuff, and I didn't want to do that anymore, and I knew that Canon colors were pleasing, so I was like, I'm going to get this camera and probably just be able to take pictures and have them be good enough to send without much adjustment, and that did pretty much come true i mean that, that, that's pretty much how it worked and i do think canon colors are nice it's an interesting comparison with fuji since i mean that's what i switched to so i've switched to fuji since then similar sort of concept where it's got stylized pictures and i feel like the difference is that with canon you have basically one look like you mm-hmm. have the canon color look and fortunately it's really good and i do really like the pictures i got from that camera and Fuji, I feel like, is kind of similar where you're going to get a character to that image, but you have a couple of different options. And so that's appealing because you mm-hmm. can get different looks depending on what you're doing. But for video, I've always used the Panasonic, the GH5, because I knew I was going to get just like that very true image. And if I wanted to, I could push it around a little bit and mm-hmm. change it into something else. So... I think that's a I think that's a big reason somebody would still consider the EOS R for photos over something like an A seven C. It uh it also lends itself to uh to doing more like shoot and burn type events where like you go and you just you shoot everything and then you burn it to a disc and you hand it to them and you don't edit it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean okay. if you want to do something like that, then having a camera with really good JPEGs is yeah. is very appealing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's the big thing, right? Is like if you're you're shopping for a camera in 2022, you're fo- you're fo- you're photo focused, uh, and you want Canon colors. Like, I guess the EOS R is what you get into because uh, an R6 is still almost a thousand dollars more. It's like eight hundred dollars more. An RP, I think, is maybe too compromised. I think an RP is maybe a thousand dollars. Yeah, it's a thousand dollars lower megapixel. So, I mean, the R7 is also an option, though, right? I guess that's true, right? If full fr- if you don't need full frame, the R7 is is a newer sensor. It's the same megapixel count. It's APS-C, but it has the newer autofocus engines in it. It can shoot C-log. It has better video specs if if video is your thing. And yeah, I mean, R7's the same price. I sure would be tempted to go with the R7 over the R, just because I don't really feel great about buying a four-year-old uh, camera. Mm-hmm. One of the arguments there would be. If you're buying into the R7, there aren't really any, or there's not a lot of R mount APS-C glass. There's maybe like one or two lenses. And so you're buying full frame, big full frame lenses to put onto a small crop sensor camera. And sure, you're getting like the nice center part of the of the lens, but you know, you're not using quote unquote the whole lens. Like sure. why are you buying all this glass that you don't need? That's fair. So it's, it comes down to the R-mount question, but you can always adapt EF to it, I guess, and yeah. that sort of thing. So I, I mean, if I was, if you're shopping around for it, so R7 is a good option. If you got to go full frame, I mean, looking at the at the Z6 or the A7C are probably good options. The Lumix S5, and then if those things, if full frame doesn't matter, uh, you know, R7 XT4. You can find you can use one of those for cheaper. That's probably you know where you're going to be if you're looking at that fifteen hundred dollar price point. Yeah, it's um, interesting. I mean, in terms of photos, though, I find myself not really being able to say it's a bad deal to go with the EOS R. I mean, I think I would be looking at some of the other options we talked about, but mm-hmm. if my main focus was photos, I feel like the specs of it are in line with the other things we've mentioned. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't be you know hurting for more capability. Unless you're shooting like sports and you need really high, you know, fast, fast shutter speed. But then you're not, you wouldn't be buying that. You'd be buying something like a, like an Olympus OM-D1, yeah. 210R6, etc. Yeah, their model names are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. And I mean, you know, you, you said they're about $1,600, but maybe you can find one cheaper. Maybe. I, I got mine in 2020 for a little under 1400 used. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, if you can get it down there, if you can get it for, you know, twelve to $1,400, I think it is still pretty yeah. compelling for photos. 1200 would be my personal breaking point. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to spend that much money on a four-year-old camera um, if it was, if it was like 1600 Yeah. It's, I mean, I know that like the, the photo technology of like, you know, that the sensor in the EOS R was still very clean. I mean, you go back two more years um, to like whenever the like the GH5 was coming out, or you know that that era camera DSLRs. Those are you know once you get over sixteen hundred ISO, they get really noisy. Oh yeah, the noise performance on the USR is much better than something yeah, like the GH5. It, it's like it got over that over that hump. Does is the GA or the EOSR uh, backside illuminated? I uh, maybe you can look and see. It is not. The Z6 is BSI, and so is the Sony. I think but that those was, are the that same was, sensor. That was right when mm-hmm. when BSI was starting to become a thing. Yeah, I mean that I would I would buy a Z6 over an EOS R. I think it's cheaper. It has a has a backside illuminated sensor, so it's going to have better noise performance. It's got better video specs, and your biggest downside is like you don't quite have the same range of lenses for Z mount. But I don't know. I think I think that's what I would do. Yeah, I, I mean, would. for twelve hundred dollars, that that is a pretty compelling option. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's really held up though. I mean, it's kind of like everything else, you know. With with phones, I'm starting to feel like you don't need to upgrade that often. I mean, sure. mine's three years old, and I used to be somebody that would upgrade every year. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think cameras are kind of the same way. I mean, you know, for a while it seemed like things were improving very very quickly year over year, and they still are. The new cameras are still definitely better than old cameras, but I mean, just the fact that we're even debating whether a four-year-old camera is still viable—that's like, good. I mean, it's great that something that's that old is still. Well, I think that it's it's that the cameras are just on a longer they're on a longer timeline, uh, like the the XT3 to the four to the XH2 two years in between, and Canon and Sony are kind of on the same pace where. You know, the A7 III came out in 2018, and the A7 IV came out in 20. 2021 at least 2021 yeah so like they're on these on these longer cycles and i mean you mentioned phones but like the biggest innovation in phones right now is the cameras yeah and it's the same thing with cameras like they're like the the new sensor technologies and faster shooting speeds and better read rates like that's where innovation is happening and there is imaging technology and there is innovation happening for sure i mean a camera that you buy this year is better than a camera from last year but but because it, because it's on such a long cycle, we're talking about the EOS R because until the R6 that came out in, you know, 2020, 2021, it like that was the newest mirrorless camera from Canon. And so it's we're still like we're just one generation back. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, and I mean, people always always say, you know, you, you know, it's not about the camera you have. You mm-hmm. don't need newer gear to make videos or photos, and it's all true. If I owned an EOS R and was happy with it, I wouldn't see a need to sell it and upgrade. Mm-hmm. I mean, but but you did sell it and upgrade. Uh, <laughs> there is that. Yes, yes, there is that. But again, on this podcast, and you know, since we're talking about the USR, maybe we should talk about why the XH2S is so much better. I don't think we should talk about that. I think I, I think we've talked about that in every episode of this podcast, and people are going to stop listening if they don't like Fuji. So. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. <laughs> I don't know. Like I when I watch when I watch people's YouTube videos, they're like, yeah. For my real work, uh, where the images matter, I shoot Canon or Sony. But for where the images don't matter and I just need a garbage throwaway camera, I shoot Fuji. With a selling point like that, how can you not go for it? <laughs> right? It's my garbage throwaway camera. Yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, I think that's 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 probably about it for today, right? I mean, the USR kind of depends upon the person and, and those nanomorphs are pretty cool. And yeah. That's going to do it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed it, we'd encourage you to rate us on iTunes and tell your photography friends about the show. Also, check out our website at cameragearpodcast.com to learn more or send us feedback and questions. We'll be back with more next week.